0: Yes, hello, folks. Welcome to the weekly global football show. I'm your host, as always, Phil Brown, with my regular co-host, the excellent Zach Louie. We've given you on in the intros before, where you can find Zach. So I'm not going to bore you with that again. Of course, uh, lots to talk about in today's show, Zach. First of all, how to you? Yes. Doing, Matt?
1: I'm doing really well. I uh, had a good Fourth of July weekend, and uh, yeah, doing doing quite well. Um, actually, just started um, a new book, so I've been trying to read more books this year, and. Um, I started a new book called The Club which kind of details the Premier League's creation and like how it was, you know, a breakaway league and how they did it in secrecy. Um mm-hmm. so really fascinating honestly, a lot of stuff that I had not known, I had never uh known about and it really paints an interesting picture of like how the Premier League, you know, became the most uh, how it how it became sorry, how, sorry about that. How it, But it just it paints a really good picture of how the Premier League became, you know, the biggest, most powerful league in the world, honestly.
0: It's really it's really interesting um, because there's so many things that goes on behind the scenes that don't make headlines that um, realize nothing is an accident. And uh, that the thinking that led to the Super League hasn't gone away. And uh, I think um, we're going to see that in another gaze, in another form because the motivations are exactly the same. Um, I'm reading The Singularity Isn't There by Ray Kurzweil. I uh, like to read a lot too. So today's show, we are going to talk about a number of different topics. Some are a little difficult to, cut, to tackle, but we we'll give it our best. We'll talk about, do you think you could ever see a global Champions League I know we've got things like the World Club Cup. You know we've got some competitions that uh, club competitions that include some of the best teams around the world. But I just wonder with the continued expansion of football, whether that's something we could see. We'll talk about how sports should handle politics um, and whether sports should be involved in politics at all. Whether even having a non-political stance on politics is a is a political stance. Um, it's uh, it's a complex issue, and obviously, with lots of different opinions, it provokes the discussion, and inevitably, whatever side you pick will offend somebody else. Um, has the transfer window worked? We'll ask that question because, um, personally, I don't think it has. I don't think it's accomplished what it was set out to do. And one of the questions, the fun question I ask at the end is if you remember the old NLS style penalties where they dribble from the halfway line and shoot. Is that a better substitute for the penalties that we see today? Because I honestly think it is. And I I would like to see that come back. But first of all, Zach, we'll talk about a global Champions League. When you look at football and you look at continued expansion of football and the fact that everything is geared and tailored tailored towards making money. And obviously FIFA wanted to introduce the World Club Cup in an effort to compete with the Champions League, although it's never been anywhere close to that. Let me ask you, do you see a future where we could see a club competition that includes all the top teams around the world rather than continent driven?
1: Uh I I I could see it because I think that I, I think that one, uh football authorities the football authorities have shown like Really, no care for player health. You know, they care above all. They care more about making money, and uh, globalization. Even if that puts a uh, you know obviously a risk on on player fatigue. Um, so we are seeing more and more new tournaments, right? Whether it's the CONCA champions, you know, looking at mm-hmm. MLS and Liga MX teams playing against each other. Whether it's you know. Um, uh, uh, the UEFA Nations League. Um, obviously, there have been you know some tournaments that have that have been cut out as well. Um, you know, you have I think France they got rid of the Coupe de la Ligue, um, but overall I think that uh, national associations have shown no real care for for that aspect of players' health. So I think that that's one positive. With that being said, I don't think that anything that would um, A tournament that would, shall we say, decrease the value of the Champions League, I don't think that would be um, a go, because I think that's one thing that clubs care a lot about, you know, preserving the value of the Champions League. Obviously, that is a massive cash cow for them. And I think that they know, and as well as everyone else, they know that, you know, European clubs are on a unique pedestal, right? I think that when you look around the world pretty much everyone, whether they're in Asia, South America, Europe, they watch European football. Um, And yes, there are quite a few people who watch Asian and South American football, but I don't think you get the same aspect of, you know, for example, people who who only follow South American football and and not European. I think that European Mm -hmm. football is more of a global aspect. So, yeah, I, I think that, for a kind of global club World Cup like what we were mentioning to take place it would have to be um, I don't want to say a friendly tournament but it, it wouldn't it would not ha- be able to interfere with the Champions League which is hard to do when you consider the fact that it runs you know almost uh, year round so it's it's a tricky proposal for sure but uh, but but yeah it'll be interesting I, I know that they you know, obviously, I know that they got rid of the Confederations Cup recently, um, and I wonder if if something like this—obviously, club versus international teams—but I wonder if it it could potentially fill that void that the Confederations Cup had uh, occupied for so many years.
0: One of the reasons that this got me thinking <clears throat> was, first of all, when we talk about the integrity of the Champions League, and we talk about how precious it is, we talk about. Clubs want to protect the clubs, don't care about the Champions League. Clubs care about the Champions League because it provides the most revenue. But as we saw with the Super League, they're willing to ditch that in a second. If somebody else comes along with more money, a better guaranteed revenue stream. And clubs inevitably align fiscally wherever the money takes them. And I look at Liga MX as an example of this. So, Liga MX is more aligned with MLS than it should be. Uh, If you genuinely want to improve the standard of your teams, they really shouldn't be looking to MLS. They should be looking to Argentina. They should be looking to Brazil. They should be pursuing that. But what they're doing now, they've done away with relegation. they're become much more aligned with MLS clubs, and there's obviously a lot of money there. When I look at the American ownership in the Premiership, and a lot of these guys own other sporting franchises, some football, I see a future where MLS clubs are going to be included. In big competitions where the revenue is much bigger, where America becomes a massive player in sports and where MLS is not relying on the CONCACAF Champions League or something that's obscure to most football fans. I see because of the financial aspects, because of how attractive that will be to FIFA, to uh, obviously UEFA is going to have a problem with this, but I'm serious act i think in, we're going to have some iteration of the super league that will eventually yeah. lead to inclusion of big clubs around the world uh clubs in yeah. key financial marketing areas like the mls and i think naturally uh they'll follow the money
1: look i mean it's certainly not some like crazy conspiracy theory okay there's definitely basis for doing something and, and at the end of the day the only guarantee that we have is that uh, footballing organizations, right, whether that's UEFA or FIFA, you know, authority th- footballing authorities, as well as you know, uh, actual leagues like La Liga, MLS, they want to follow the money, and a lot of that, a lot of that following the money um, is, you know, ties back into globalization. Mm-hmm. I think that there's definitely some, some aspect that, so I, I kind of, I sort of get your point with, with Argentina, but let's not forget it's, it's a, also a shorter um, in, in many ways, a shorter travel uh, traveling span for these Mexican teams to go to the U S um, than, than Argentina. Okay. That's one aspect two uh, you know, there are a lot of fans of America, uh, Rayados, Tigres, Cruz Azul, in 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 places like Texas, sure. uh, California, Arizona, obviously you know that as somebody who's in LA, and that's why you see you know pretty much like every every time uh, Mexico gets the chance to organize a friendly, right? They'll do it in the U.S. because that's where you'll get these fans who who support these teams, uh, these club teams, but also support the Mexican national team. And you know, not just coming out for for the experience, but also showing a lot of fashion. These are diehards, right? So that's I think an aspect that 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 is definitely going to benefit positively, right? Now, you have to look at that, um, and and I think I think that's an aspect where it made sense, right, to kind of continue the merger. Um, I'm not sure if I agree with Mexico getting 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 rid of relegation, but I think that from that aspect. Okay, there are a lot of people of Mexican descent, a lot of people who support Mexican clubs who live in the states. They want to see their teams play. So that's definitely a a, a positive aspect. Can you replicate can, can you see a similar aspect of that with uh with this global thing, right? Uh, like for example, I like I'm I'm not sure what what you're trying to um like how how exactly you would organize it? Would you have like a oh, River Plate and Boca Juniors uh, from South America, and Al Hilal, and you know from from Asia? And, you know, kind of getting together. Is is there a chance to replicate that? Like, I think I think that's that's the question. You know, you need to be asking.
0: I think you'll see something similar to World Cups. I think you'll see something mm, like yeah. that. And look, what you just said sort of sums my point these teams follow where the revenue is. So there's lots of Manchester United fans in Ireland, but Mm -hmm. Manchester United don't don't play a lot of games there, right? Because there are fans everywhere. So, you know, yes, there's certain regions of the world that have huge pockets of fans, particular football clubs, and clubs will go there because that's where the revenue is, right? There's no point in in, uh, Club America and Chivas having a game in Buenos Aires whenever they could have it in LA and it's going to sell out because that's where they're going. And I I understand, that's what I mean, where the economical alignment for these football clubs. And when we look at things like meritless sport, okay, where there is no relegation, to a purist like me, that's a shock to the system. But I thought about this a lot. And I thought, is there entertainment in things that are meritless? Right. I look at the WWE, for example, that has scripted outcomes where we know this is essentially stunt men and it's wonderfully scripted. And because the variables, because the randomness is taken out of it, human beings write these incredible stories, right? With these incredible outcomes. It's almost like a Hollywood movie that keeps people engaged. Even though the script writers know the outcome, the people watching it don't. And this is what I'm talking about to you and to or to purists that want promotion relegation that don't want meritless sport. The idea of no relegation is offensive, but there's a lot of young people who don't care about these things. And they're going to be the ones that are going to shape the future. So I can 100% see where the risk gets taken out, which is relegation, right, to big investors, where there's guaranteed revenue coming in, where it's closed leagues, where we have, you know, basically a global league of the top teams and the rest can go do what they want because this is going to be so well-funded. So there's no second division in the NBA. Nobody cares. Everyone just watches the NBA. There's no second division in all these other leagues or other leagues that that people really focus on. There's one league that everyone follows and that's going to garnish the vast majority of the support, the attention, the revenue, everything else. And yes, you'll have some other fledgling stuff, but it's going to die. And this is what I think we're headed towards?
1: Listen, I mean, when dealing with these uh, topics, I think that it's important to to look at, you know, what you're missing out on, right? Look at negatives, but also mm-hmm. look at the end product, okay? So in the case of MLS, um, MLS was formed, right, after pretty much a decade without any major uh, soccer league in the U.S., right? There was... Mm-hmm. The, the crumble of the NASL right and then you had indoor soccer taking right. over in the 80s and then MLS uh, popping up in I believe 1997 uh, 96 uh, yeah, due to 96, the yeah, um, due to the World Cup right um, so look MLS has gone on for 25 years not only has it gone on for a quarter century, but it's also improving in quality, it's improving in the quality of players that they're there, improving in, you know, academies. Overall, I think that the U.S. national team has improved Uh, in large part due to MLS and, you know, teams investing in their academies, right? Now, with that being said, I don't think that MLS will ever be a, uh, will ever be a top three league in the world because of that lack of relegation. Okay. Like for me as a purist, it's something that makes football better having that threat of going down and having teams be able to, you know, go from the fourth division to the second division in two years. is something that I absolutely love to see. And so it's a bit unnatural. Okay. And, and when I was in Russia for the world cup, uh, four years ago. Um I was I was actually speaking to a few quite a few higher higher ups who are in charge of MLS, who are in charge of the World Cup bid, you know, stuff like that. And um they they were mentioning that ten years from now they want the main goal basically to MLS be like the the best league outside of the big big five. So I think that's a decent goal. But personally like will MLS ever be that top club top top league? without relegation i'm not so sure i think that it's a really really um tough thing to have but i also I, I also don't think that it was necessarily the wrong decision for mls because look if mls uh had relegation i think that one it would have uh it it would have made a lot of investors a lot of owners hesitant to invest cuz they realize oh well my team might be playing in the mm-hmm. second division next year okay so, I think that if if there was relegation, there's a good chance that MLS would not be as successful uh, as it is today. Okay. Exactly. Nobody uh, ever asked so, the other question. Yeah. How
0: many people would invest if their team could get promoted?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And also, I mean, another, the flip side of that as well, like you look at how much it takes to buy an MLS
0: team. Yeah, I, I read. Really compare that
1: to all of these historic teams that are you know located in prime markets that are you know like so have so much history so much fan base uh, so much culture and and it's it's incredible the gap between mls it's it's massive and having a lack of relegation is part of that so i think that that's that's one thing that you have to look at right you have to look at the drawbacks you also have to look at if we got a if we got rid of this you know would mls be the same and i think that you know uh, to to tie it back to the book that I'm reading, um, right with regards to, you know, the club, fantastic book on on the Premier League's uh, growth. Um, look, I think that having the breakaway Premier League, having it break away from from the rest of the English football fo- footballing pyramid, obviously it negative negatively impacted a lot of English teams. You know, I think that there are a lot of English teams that were unfairly uh, screwed out of the pyramid. With that being said, is English football in a better state now than it is than it was 30 years ago? Undoubtedly, you have to look at you know like the the situation of the facilities, right? Of the um, of the you know uh, the fan violence of the stadiums, of the bathrooms, of uh, Bovril, Something I had no idea what it was. Bovril... Bovril. Bo- Bovril? Is that how Bovril? you said? yeah. Bovril. I'm probably going to stuff that you're old enough to remember now, Phil. <laughs> Bovril is
0: nasty! <laughs> oh, it's Which so is...
1: new, right? so yeah. So rank. Some beef juice. So, look, <laughs> have there been a lot of English teams, like I don't know, Bradford City, Macclesfield Town, Halifax, that have mm-hmm. been negatively impacted by the Premier League? Um, Absolutely. Okay, I think that in 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 essence, um, you know its capitalistic nature is bound to to make English football a more unequal place, and and that is what it has done. With that being said, is English football in a much better place now than it was three decades ago? One hundred percent, and I think that's the same thing with MLS. Okay, I think that I would I would love, you know, for teams like you know, Phoenix Rising or the El Paso Locomotives, uh, all these teams in the USL, right, to have that opportunity to go into the MLS. But with with having two or three leagues, right, and having, uh, having promotion relegation, that is also going to cause owners to be a little he- more, more hesitant to invest in an MLS club, to invest in the facilities, to invest in the academies, to invest in players, that is going to, uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's going to cause a uh, worse league. So you have to look at both, both I'm sides. I'm okay with that,
0: that. Sure. and I'll tell you why. People shouldn't be buying football clubs for the purpose of return on investment. People shouldn't be buying sports teams because they want to make money off them. So if it scares away those kinds of people, then I'm okay with that. Secondly, if you ask any business person, they will tell you investing in a football club for return on investment is is idiotic compared to all the other thousands of businesses that give you a much better uh, return and much less risk. I'm not saying promotion and allegation isn't without consequence, of course it is, right? There's teams that have gone down. We look at Derby County, we look at other teams that that have tried to pursue the Premier League dream. We look at Leeds. we look at that, but that's a failure of governance for me. And when I look at things like collective bargaining, Collective bargaining is anathema to capitalists because the one thing they want to create is the differential, right? So if every if you give, let's say the Premier League TV deal is 2 billion, well, we're going to increase it to 10 billion, but we're going to equitably distribute that across all your all the teams. That means nothing to them. Because now they can't manipulate another team to get a player out of there because they have money. What they need to create is differential between them the haves and the have-nots. And that's why I feel things like collective bargaining will disappear. And then it comes the question in leagues that we talk about the top three leagues. Let's say we're going to say La League is one of them. Well, relegation, promotion and relegation isn't about Barcelona or Real Madrid, the teams that make it the best league in the world. Or if it's arguably the best league in the world. That's for teams like Cádiz. That's for teams like Alves, Right? That's for teams that's a whole different league. And I don't know how much better that makes the league, but it certainly keeps teams alive. It certainly keeps the dream alive if you're a fan of a smaller club. Right? There's certainly utility to it. Right, But I don't know if promotion relegation makes the league better. Right, But it certainly creates, to me, legitimate merit yeah. in the sport. So I just feel that when you look at the capitalist world, capitalists don't like freedom of choice because that's their enemy. So in any society, they try to take away civil liberties or liberties at all to compel you to do certain things. You must do this, right? This is the only route to financial reward. Take away choice. That's what I think we're heading towards. And um, anyway, uh, let's move on. Let's take another, another difficult topic. And this is going to be a sensitive topic. Uh, and we'll try to discuss this as benign as possible, as so benign a way as possible. But, And that is the intersection between sport and politics. Because as we become increasingly polarized in this world, where lots of different things that divide us, whether it's the media, social media, whatever, uh, we're polarized opinions on what's right and what's wrong. We live in a country that has an enormous interface with with politics and I don't even think the US realizes how political sports are here. When I first came to this country and I watched US sports I was stunned. And on top of which I was stunned at what was so averted that other people here were looking at me like what's that's not political? That's not political? That's couldn't be more political. Right? I mean, I'm going to baseball games where I've got Jets flying over my head. <laughs> it's not political. I mean, I understand the sentiment. the Damn. You've got the U.S. military paying the NFL to do commercials on the field to recruit. Then there's the Colin Kaepernick situation. The shut up and dribble. But then it's okay when my guy says something I agree with. There's Tim Tebow stuff. And and then, of course, we get into the BLM stuff. We get into lots of other, the the poppies in England, which is, you know, puts people in a situation where they have to make a choice. Then, of course, we have the situation where we've got players refusing to wear uh, pride uh, armbands because it's offensive to them religion. It's really hard to know how to get this right. What's your take on it?
1: um absolutely 100 percent. i think that it's so hypocritical in many ways to to ask these players to you know shut up and dribble and stay out stay in their own lane stay out of politics when the fact is i mean you you look at so many of these american sports right there's flyover military flyovers you've got you know the national anthem all this stuff which is incredibly political and yet the moment that a player wants to kneel for, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to, to protest against uh, police officers shooting black people, shooting unarmed black people, uh, and some of which, you know, some of which maybe they, they even had a family member or a friend affected mm-hmm. by it. Um, it's just absolutely ridiculous. And the fact is, t- saying that football, saying that sports and politics should not mix, that is an inherently political statement
0: mm-hmm, that's essentially exactly. stating
1: that, okay, it shouldn't matter to you. You you shouldn't be able to exercise your freedom of speech. You shouldn't be allowed to take a stand for what you believe in. And of course, it's only for people who you disagree with, right? That's mm-hmm. That's what all these people say. So look, I mean if if somebody wants to if if somebody on my team wants to say oh like um you know i i uh i i vote for donald trump you know or 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 whatever you know that's that's fine it's it's his right okay but where i think that uh, like there there are just so many aspects where it's where it's just so hypocritical teams are saying you can do one thing but then when another player does another thing that's political you know they they say another thing, so you know I think Tebow. You mentioned Tim Tebow. That's a great example, right? Doing all of this kind of in in many ways theatrics for Christianity. That frankly, if a Muslim player uh, yep. did the same thing, it would not get the same reaction. Of okay, um, so really so hypocritical. And and I, look, I think that you need to be able to have that balance. I need I I, I think that you need to have players. I'm afraid to express those beliefs and showcase it where it becomes a bit more tricky is for stuff like, let's say vaccinations. Mm-hmm. If a player refuses to get vaccinated, fact is he's putting his team at risk. He's putting his teammates, his coach, his technical staff at risk of getting uh, COVID-19 now, and, and also having much worse uh, symptoms, right? now where 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 does that fall in the line because that is that 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 I think is taking on a new level right it's you know if you want to support donald trump or or whoever that's that's fine you know it's not directly affecting me but if you don't get vaccinated for example that's potentially directly affecting all of us so that's an aspect where i think uh, where, where I think perhaps you need to have a bit more discipline, shall we say?
0: There's going to be people this, this who are already offended. Let me say this on the vaccination thing. I still believe it should be freedom of choice. I still believe it should be down to human beings, right? But when players get injured, they can often choose what doctor treats them, right? Which is their right. It's their health. Um, and, you know, I'm vaccinated, but I, re- I respect the right of people to have a choice. But you have to deal with the consequences of that choice. So if you refuse to take uh, things that are required by state law, because you know we're looking at McCarry Irving, Irving, where you have to be vaccinated to play in their stadium, and if you refuse to get vaccinated, you have to deal with the consequences of that. That's just life, right? If I refuse to wear a seatbelt, I have to deal with the consequences. I, I have to deal with the fact that I'm going to get pulled over. I'm going to get a ticket going to, or potentially kill myself. That, I understand that everyone sees this the same way, but I think you should have the right to choose. I also don't think that it should be broadcast whether you got vaccinated or not. I think you should have privacy in that. However, I respect the fact that it's difficult to protect people from that whenever you've got state laws demanding you be vaccinated to play in their arenas. So <clears throat> I think uh, when it comes to your health, Phil, so you that's y- you made a great point.
1: Just like that's that's another thing. Like I think that freedom of choice that's that's a great point for sure. But let's not let's not forget we're talking about uh, athletes who are playing mm-hmm. in private organizations, right? Sure. This is not something that's public; it's private. Mm-hmm. And right, so being an athlete for a professional sport team that's a that's a privilege, not a right. So I think that. Yeah, that, that's that's definitely an interesting yeah. distinction that you
0: brought up. It is it is a privilege, but it's a, it, it's a mutually agreed privilege, right? These players are not getting contracts because it's a community outreach program. These players are getting contracts because they're exceptionally valuable to their organizations. Absolutely. So it's a quid pro quo between the player and the organization. So if I have I object to certain things on religious grounds. Right. certain treatments, certain, you know, there's there's players that do Ramadan and stuff. If I want to observe Ramadan, or it's their right, you have to respect that. Now, if there's a sporting consequence where it affects your performance or whatever, then you also have to deal with that consequence of your choice. You have the freedom to choose, but you're not free from the consequences of your choices. This often is the is the mistake people make about freedom of speech. It's your right to say whatever you want. But you, it's not your right to be exonerated from whatever you say. You may deal with consequences for what you say. If you deal with consequences for what you say, that's not an infringement on your freedom of speech. And if you deal with consequences of your choices, that's not an infringement on your freedom of choice. You make a choice knowing there's a cost-benefit to everything. So on the vaccine thing, it's a bit, it's a bit gray. You know, um, to me, I understand that there are certain... There are certain institutions or certain, uh, certain cl- certain industries that should ha- that have unique exemptions that uh, don't apply to everyone else because of the nature of what they do. I mean, the U.S. military demands that you're vaccinated, right? Um, uh, and so there's certain things, there's certain areas where you have to allow that. For by I, you, if you don't want to get vaccinated, that's fine, but you can't be part of this. This is a prerequisite for you to be part of it. I still believe people should have freedom of choice, and I don't think it should be broadcasted, what people's choice was. Um, then of course there's the other interface between like the war in Ukraine. Okay. So what makes it okay to support this, but not this conflict and not that conflict. And what what what's different about that conflict? If you fly a Palestinian flag in a stadium, you can get it confiscated. Palestinians are going to turn around and say, We have a right. In the same way Ukraine has, or any other conflict for that matter. You know, I grew up in a conflict situation myself. It's it is incredibly uh, divisive. So, uh, it, it's similar, you know, similar background, Ukraine, Russia, right? So, to me, I think there's certain things that are once you open the door, you have to open the door to everything. I'll give you an example. <clears throat> England got to wear a puppy on. Their national team should. Then other teams started a plan to FIFA, saying, well, we want to wear an Easter lily that celebrates our freedom. Nope, not getting it. Nope, not getting it. Nope, you can't do that. You can't have your pet projects and deny everyone else. Once you open the door, you have to open the door to everything or you keep it permanently closed.
1: Yeah, no, I completely agree with you, Phil. I think that it, it's really, it's not about, it's not even about politics. It's about whose politics is right. at risk, right? Um, you know, and, and I... Look, I, I really hope that Ukraine prevail in this fight against Russian aggression. But mm-hmm. the fact is, I mean, you look at all this stuff with Ukraine-Russia that's, that's happening with sports bodies, right? You look at Wimbledon banning Russian athletes, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is such a joke. You I look agree. at uh Russia getting kicked out of the World Cup, Russian teams getting kicked out of the Champions League and Europa League. And then you look at, you know, the moment that some 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 fan wants to uh, you know, or or some player wants to hold a Palestinian flag and they're mm-hmm. they're kicked out, you know, it's it's just so so hypocritical. You can't have it one way and then try to have it the other way. Correct. Uh and and right, just going back to it. Politics and football will politics and sports Will never be. Uh, they they can never be separated. You know they're always going to play a part. And so by trying to tell people to separate it, uh, to to keep it out, that's that's just inherently going to be political. Because no matter where it's it's one, it's going to be inherently hypocritical. And 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 that is because no matter where you go, there's always some aspect. Of politics that's being included right whether mm-hmm. it's Ukraine whether it's the poppies whether it's the military flyover and these, LGBTQ uh, love, and yeah, yes. exactly, these love letters to to the military all, all this stuff is is inherently at odds with keeping politics out of sports so I I completely agree and I, I never want players to feel um, to feel afraid to express their political opinions and to stand up for what's right. That's why I'll always have respect for you know someone like Richarlison, who you know you may not like what he does uh, on the pitch, but he's always used his 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 voice to stand up for what's right in in Brazil. You know, encouraging Brazilians to get vaxxed, um, and you know, I just always uh, you know being being. Um, you know, trying to stand up for the Amazon, and and so so for me, give me a Charlieson over anyone else, uh, who who's who's going to say that uh, sports and politics should not be separated.
0: And the interesting thing about this, Zach, is you look at someone like Marcus Rashford, right? If you go back to the start of the pandemic, there was British politicians calling out footballers for not doing yep. enough, right? But these are the same people will be the first ones to complain sport and politics shouldn't mix once an athlete expresses an opinion I disagree with, right? Yep. And when I say we accept everything, I'm talking about things that offend me. I'm talking about things that I don't like. That's just life. You have to be a grown human being. You have to accept outcomes you don't like. You have to accept opposing views we don't like. One of the worst things about the internet is it's convinced everybody they're right. And algorithms exacerbate this because it puts people in echo chambers and they don't hear opposing views and are offended by opposing views. And now we've got a bunch of grown adults that are so offended by the truth that create any nonsense, right? And unfortunately, the internet has exacerbated this, as we know. So we now have a society that's so deeply polarized that they hate each other, that they are no longer willing to accept that Not everyone sees the world the same way they do. I'm not perfect. I have my own prejudices. No, I have my own triggers. My politics, whatever they are, are of inclusion, of love. I hate nationalism. I hate people that are overly proud of their country. I don't understand that. You know, to me, I'm a citizen of the world. I find beauty in every culture. I find something interesting in every culture. I don't look at anyone and think, I'm better than you. You know. I, I I one of the things that I loved about America when I first came here was the fact that I was surrounded by so many different cultures I'd never been exposed to before. I love Hispanic culture. I love those people. You know, I've, I, and I think that the right to self-determinate your, your own future, no one should be have a government depo- imposed on them. No one should have their private mandate taken away from them. We should all be living in an equitable world. That respects each other, that has an equitable distribution of resources, that doesn't have trillionaires and people at the bottom that are that, that that are living on pennies, that are living in poverty, that weaponizes poverty, that cultivates a perception of who is a welfare queen, of who gets welfare. We're all human beings, we're all doing the best we can. First of all, the place we were born is nothing more than a birth and accident. None of us chose where we were born. But we all want the same thing. We all want happiness. It's the only thing worth envying in life. And I just don't understand how people hate, how they get up and look at another human being and think that rights are zero sum. That for you to have equality, for you to have human rights, I have to give mine up. It's bullshit, absolute bullshit. And the the deterioration of epistemology in our education is a disgraceful indictment on our politicians. So when sport is a force for good that encourages inclusion, that settles certain arguments, a mature democracy does not fight over identity. It's settled. Do you think people in Denmark are voting based on what it means to be Danish? They're voting on social issues, right? They're not voting on identity politics, and all politics to some degree are identity politics. But this this identity issue of what it means to be a patriot, of what it means to be a a human being from your country, because it means something different to everybody else. Because once in America as an immigrant, I was asked to assimilate, and I said to my friend, who asked me to assimilate, I said, you know, it's not the first time I've been asked that question, but I'll tell you what, I went down and asked an African American how to assimilate, and he gave me a different answer to you. And then I asked a Native American how to assimilate, and he gave me a different answer to you. And then I asked a Latin American how to assimilate, and he gave me a different answer to you. So which one is it? Because what they really mean is act like me. Discard your culture. Discard anything that I don't understand that's offensive to me. Be like me. I don't want to live in that world, Zach.
1: Yeah. No, absolutely. I I could not agree more with you. I think that this whole assimilation and forcing people to, you know, wash away their roots, at the end of the day, it's just another form of racism. We're all human
0: beings. We've assimilated on this planet. Life assimilated on this planet. Expressions of culture are important that are different than you. It's not a threat to you. Uh, It just, it frustrates me, I don't know. But look, I think sport has utility in this discussion. But I think if we're honest, we're going to have to accept that certain things are going to offend us because that's just the nature of the yin-yang world, okay? So we have to accept political views in sports we don't like. We have to accept, otherwise you can't have anything. And you're right that saying that politics and sports shouldn't mix is also a political statement yeah absolutely no
1: just just one thing i mean look if i know that we have a diverse group of listeners Mm -hmm. uh if you you know and if you have a different viewpoint than me look i'm thank you for sticking with us Mm -hmm. at this and thank you for keep listening uh and yeah that should be the goal i think to be able to respect and uh you know not necessarily agree but respect other viewpoints as long as they are not dangerous to you know someone's status as a human being i Correct. think that's, that's incredibly important i think but Im- look i mean that's 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 one thing that you know one of the reasons why i agreed to do this podcast on a weekly basis because we are never going to be afraid to tackle these topics no. even they might feel uncomfortable for some people we are never going to strut we are never going to evade them
0: and that's no. why I'm. That's why I'm incredibly
1: happy to be a part of the Global Football Show.
0: I appreciate that, man. And I appreciate people who have listened to this. And if you have a different view, that's perfectly fine. Every view I hold today, I once held uh, an almost opposing view until I got better information. And I'll abandon any view I have if you give me better information than the information I have. And I think that is being intellectually honest. And that's what you should do to change your mind when the information changes. If you're locked into a particular position and emotionally committed to it, you'll never right because you'll be based an opinion on what you want to be true not what is true and it's more important what's right than who's right uh let's talk about uh a last point at issue uh the transfer window okay yep. because the transfer window when it was first brought in I remember when it was first brought in and the the, the thought behind it was this is going to get young players better opportunities at clubs this is going to result in clubs not being able to dip in the transfer market in October and November. They're going to be forced to play young players and this is going to provide an enormous benefit. That's almost been forgotten. You know, now I'm asking myself, when I look at the number of young players that get perpetually loaned out, and then the fact that squads, big big clubs, do the opposite, they then overload on the size of, the of their squads. The question I I have is, what's the benefit again of this?
1: What is? Sorry, I'm trying to think. You're the, asking, what's the benefit? Yeah, of Yeah, what's transfer the benefit
0: of the, of the of the transfer? Why wouldn't we just have it all year round? Why, why 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 do we? If you look at the Premier League, Premier League tried to end the transfer window yeah. right before the season started, right at the day the season started that lasted what, a year or two and they abandoned it immediately because right. it put them at a disadvantage i'm asking how does it benefit small clubs if they can't sell a player in october or november how does it benefit right. anybody
1: yeah no for sure it's it's an interesting point look i think that i i actually thought that i i, I thought that the the premier league you know changing their um transfer window expiry date i thought that it was a bad idea, but not not a bad idea in principle. But a bad idea because no other league is doing right. it, so it was just naturally going to give them a competitive disadvantage. But look, I I think that there there is some validity to that because one thing that I I really do dislike um is 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 the like the, the that overlap period between when the season starts um, and when the transfer window ends and it's about like a few weeks. Right. But, uh, it, but even, even so you've got players who are playing for a team they're thinking, am I going to go to the, to this other team? You know, should I sit out? Should I try to put pressure on the club to sell me? So I think that potentially, yeah, getting rid of the tra- transfer deadlines that is that is something that could fix it as well. You Another way that that could um, fix that is, of course, doing what the English, um, what, what the Premier League did temporarily. Right. And just kind of require it for uh, European leagues to 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 end the transfer market right before the domestic league starts. OK, but I'm not sure if, if that's if that's feasible, if that's going to happen. I think that with, with regards to the deadlines, but. The one thing that I think is is a bit tricky, though, to when when talking about getting rid of these deadlines and having like a year-round transfer window is um is is talking about registering right registering players, uh, because obviously clubs mm-hmm. in, in UEFA competitions they have to register it right. There's the um the August deadline right where they have to register it before the Champions League and Europa Europa Conference League group stage kicks in, as well as doing it after the January window. Um, so that, that is as well a bit tricky, right? How are you going to be able to um, ag- agree, agree those two things? Um, but with, with regards to the point that you made on, on loaning players out, I could not agree more. I think that I, I look around so many clubs and the fact is there are just too many teams that are hogging talents too many teams where you know a young player who is incredibly talented and is just wasting away on the bench when he could be playing for uh, a a smaller team. And a lot of times, you know, it's it's not even it's not even just the club's fault. It's it's the player's fault as well because he wants to collect uh, a hefty salary when he could be making less money and and playing regularly. But and so it's it's and so I think that. You know, this is not just a Chelsea problem. I think, I know that Chelsea and their lone army have talked a lot about that. But this is, you look around all these clubs, uh, you know, Paris Saint-Germain, uh, Bayern, Benfica, all these teams, they're, they're, they're constantly loaning these players out. And it's, it's unfair to the player, because I think that when you don't have a permanent home, when you're constantly being loaned out, and, and many times to, di- uh, to different teams in different countries, it's very hard to find that stability that you need. As a young player, um, I remember uh, Gabriel Marcotti r- writing a piece saying that basically one way to uh, reduce inequality is is to reduce the squad size uh, to to basically to essentially force teams to have a smaller squad. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think talent redistribution that that was that was definitely an interesting idea. I haven't seen too many other solutions mentioned, but uh, definitely something that I think deserves to be considered for sure.
0: Yeah, and there's this part with the loan and out part. So I have a friend of mine that owns Championship Club yep. and he's telling me about the way it works with loan, Premier League loans and stuff. And the burden on smaller clubs to loan these players. I mean, we talk about the benefit to... Uh-huh these clubs, but there's also a massive financial burden. They're talking about third-choice goalkeepers in the Premier League where they want a championship club to cover all their wages, which in some cases is 20000 a week, where they just can't do that. And they want to do it to where the loan ends at the end of the summer. So you pay their wages for two months while you don't have them on loan because you're not playing. And so there's a massive financial burden on smaller clubs to loan these players to increase squad size because they can't run lean. They can't run turn around and say, we're going to run lean and if we if someone gets injured in October, we can go out and bring somebody in. Now, I'm all for saying if you've played four or five games for a particular club, you can't go play for someone else. I get that, right? But I don't see the benefit. I mean, I see the benefit to big clubs, but I don't see the benefit to clubs that need to sell to survive how the, the, the transfer window serves any purpose at all. And we take a look at so many other things like City Football Group, right? I mean, this is a disgrace that you can own clubs all over the world. Melbourne, France, New York. I mean, and then buying up young talent and just distributing it all throughout these football clubs. This is, this is, so you look at the RB Leipzig model. All revenue ends up coming back, the RB Leipzig to Red Bull. Right, buy these clubs, get all this revenue, come back to your club, use these other clubs to develop talent sell. This is this is disgraceful. This should never be allowed to ha- happen. And and the potentials and negatives of this are, are well, they're already seen. The Patsy family should this shouldn't be allowed to happen. Because you get these players constantly move throughout these football clubs. You've got this financial shell game that's going on, right? And you've got all sorts of ropey uh, all sorts of dodgy sponsorship deals and revenue transfers between these clubs that just make, make it impossible to, to properly uh, manage and to, properly, to, proper, to have proper oversight. So when I look at this, this is what I'm talking about, Zach. where money, the t- the tail will wag the dog. The people with the biggest money in the game are going to determine what the game's laws are. And it won't be written in favour of competitive balance. And I look at this and I think the transfer window has been a colossal failure, in my opinion. And I think if they le- left, like, w- w- what's the other negative? January is a terrible time to buy. Deadline dates have massively inflated prices. They cause players to go almost go on strike because they're nervous. They need to get out by a certain date. All right? Right. That's what you when you talk about the scenario that you gave where a player is basically going on strike for the last for the first couple of games of the season. The United almost had this with David De Gea when he went to Real Madrid. He was banned for the first four games. Because mentally he wasn't right and he needed to get out by deadline day. Right? January, terrible time to buy. Then scrap the window. If there's really only two months where you're it's a decent time to buy, what's the point? Because what it does. How many times do we see teams leaving business the last two days of of window? It happens every single year. And then you have this massive scramble of massively inflated wages, massively inflated transfer fees. Because they're working under a deadline. I just, I think if you left it open to go to the market anytime you wanted, right, teams would be a lot leaner. It'll be interesting to see how teams do this summer with the transfer window, the gap between the January transfer window and, and the games being played because of the World Cup being much shorter. I, I guarantee you, you won't see as much deadline day business. I just don't think it, it it provides any serious net benefit, and I don't think it's given the benefit that we thought it would. I I, I don't. What do you think?
1: Yeah, no, for sure. I think that it's 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 definitely... I, I think that my issue with the transfer market is that... Um, well, I have a few issues with it. One of my issues is that I feel like a whole, more and more summers pass, and I feel like in many ways fans have almost started to care more about the transfer market. Shame than football and this is not just like it would be one thing right if if this was if this was something that just happened from from june to august right where, where fans were getting obsessed with it the fact is this is happening in april in 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 uh march right we're seeing fans saying oh is is my club getting close to agreeing terms you know all this stuff look i realize that the transfer market is exciting but i think that it's become a bit too um, aggrandized you know where, where where we're seeing these fans essentially become more obsessed with with what's happening in in offices in in, in the transfer market than actually what's happening in the football pitch and look I'm I certainly uh, have, have found myself I have been guilty of this on on a few occasions right of of caring more about um, about about the transfer market than 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 actual football, and I think it's 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 hard to get out of that cycle, right? We co- are constantly being fed um, with these, you know, uh, you know, neurotransmitters. We're, we're constantly being being fed, um, you know, it's 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 being fed into our dopamine levels. You know, when we see this alert, oh, this guy close to. Uh, agreeing terms, you know, waiting for the medicals, you know, all this stuff. We're we're just addicted to it, um, and and yeah, I think that that's 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 one of my biggest issues with it. So going back to what you were saying as well with the with the city football group, you know, I think that's a great point as well. We we recently saw. Um, this 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 move that I thought was like one of the most modern football moves ever, and it was uh Troy, yeah. um, a a team that uh, just got promoted to to league on um I believe one year ago and did did fairly well and and are part of the city football group. They signed Savinho yeah. for a club record twelve point five million euros. They haven't even announced him. He will probably never play for them, and he's going to join PSV,
0: mm-hmm. so
1: on on loan. And it's like, wait, what? Because what? Yeah. One doesn't PSV doesn't PSV have more money than Troy? You know, and like, is this not just like another way of laundering money? Of like, it just does not make any sense to me.
0: But imagine how it with feels to be a said, fan. Sorry, what's up? Imagine how it feels to be a fan of Troy. I mean well, your yeah, club is no longer your club.
1: And that's right and that and that's one thing um as well that I think you need to take into account. Well, you know, Troy, okay. Yes, that that I I think that as a fan it would hurt because you are essentially, you know, Manchester City's plaything. but with that being said, uh you have to also look at the other side of it. Being a sister club of Manchester City, or you know Red Bull, or whatever, um, it's also going to provide some financial security. Okay, it's some financial blanket. You have to look at that side. Okay. There's a reason why these clubs, and I, I believe, I believe, um, I believe Palermo was the most recent acquisition of the City Football Group. You know, a historic club that has seen so many top players like uh, Javier Pastore and Edinson Cavani pass through. Right. Um, You know, a club like Palermo willingly become willingly becoming, you know, just another lackey in this cycle. Well, what what is a big reason for that? It's, I think, financial security. And knowing that even if they get sent down to the second division again or the third division, still going to have an umbrella. So I, I completely agree with what you're coming, where you're coming from. But with that being said. You need to also attack the root of it directly.
0: Yeah, of course. What is
1: the root is that we are becoming more and more, um, more and more. I think unbalanced and isolated, mm-hmm. where a fewer and f- a smaller and smaller group of clubs have have this financial security that so many other clubs, frankly, do not have.
0: Which is exactly why we started this conversation the way we did, this whole podcast the way we did where yeah. the 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 real goal of these top clubs is to create differentials between them, the half yeah. and the have-nots, right? Because that's where you can manipulate people. And the thing about financial doping is somewhere along the line, it's just not emotionally nourishing. It's just not spiritually nourishing. If Manchester City won the league and couldn't sell out the stadium. The first game of season, team fans had just been allowed back in the stadium after COVID. There's something about their success that isn't resonating with other people. Maybe it resonates with the fans of the football club. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe maybe deep down inside, this doesn't feel authentic. But City can't grow because everyone looks at them the same way. They look at them. Trying to rub shoulders with self-made billionaires, being a lottery winner, and it just it just stinks. It stinks of plastic. It stinks of fakeness. It, 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 and the question is, where would they be without those owners? They'd be exactly where they were before they came. And Chelsea had the same problem. So, I I, I look at Liverpool. Liverpool's success, as much as it kills me to say it, is pure merit through an exceptional manager, exceptional management of resources, not going to the market and saying, we can buy any player we want. Not manipulating 20 other football clubs, not financially doping. That to me is merit-based accomplishment that feels so much more nourishing and authentic than Manchester City buying the league. Everyone buys a league, I accept that, right? But if, let's say, to give an equivalent, say, let's say, um, I don't know, an, a, a, a mid table Premier League club, let's say, Norwich City gets bought by Saudi owners tomorrow. And three years from now, they're competing for the league. That would not feel authentic. That would be, this is ridiculous. Right? I'm not saying you need to know your place, but there's a very clear correlation between financial doping and their success. Pap Guardiola, genius. No question. Right? Would Pep Guardiola be at Manchester City if Manchester City didn't have those owners? No way. Right, Robinho was saying for Manchester City he didn't even know who Manchester City were. Thought he was going to Manchester United. That's a mark of where City you were. Know, even under the... Shinawatra, who never should have been doing a football club. So to me, I think there's something about this that it just doesn't feel real. And it's also the same with PSG. And even though PSG are in a big city, a big glamorous city, and to me are a bigger club than Manchester City, and have much more of a pool than Manchester City, their fans rioted despite winning the league this year because they get knocked out of the Champions League. So winning the league, what was that, PSG's ninth title, something like that. Winning the league is no longer good enough for PSG. They, go, they're, they're, they turned on their players. Doesn't really feel like it was supposed to, does it, lads? Doesn't really feel like you thought it was going to feel whenever they came in and bought your football club. Now the sugar high is over. Now what? Because pleasure and happiness, they're different things. Anyway, <laughs> that's my view. Um, last fun little topic of the day, Okay. Every once in a while on your timeline, you'll see a retweet of um, vintage MLS. And one of the funniest things that I love to watch is the old penalty, where the dribble from the, edge of the, from the halfway line, what is that, like 10 seconds or something to dribble the ball in and shoot and score. And as ridicule as it was at the time, by a course purist, and I was one of them, I look at it now and I go, you know what? That's better than penalties. What do you think? Oof, you know I'm kind of a
1: purist, so <laughs> look, I I love I love the throwbacks. I love watching it. It's it almost reminds me of hockey, but uh, nah, for me it's got to be the regular penalties. I I won't I won't deny that I think that this would be fun for like if if there's ever an all star game or something amongst uh, European clubs or like a friendly game. I think that it would be interesting to see. But no, I think that for me, penalty shootout is fine the way it is.
0: Obviously, I lost it there a second, Zach. Um, listen, one of the sorry. reasons. Uh, sorry, go ahead, man. Now yeah. like to finish. No, so, sorry. Can you can you hear me now? Yeah, you got, to, you
1: got to cut it on me. Look, I think that I I think that yes, it is in some ways a cruel way to finish a game, but. <sighs> I, don't, I also don't think there's a better option. and I think that um, I think that having this current penalty, the, the way it's taken for me, I love it because it's so uh, it, it is so nerve-wracking you know and and the fact that you cannot you know you can't take a touch. you've got to just hit the ball from where it's placed and 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 try to find the back of the net.
0: I, I love it. I, yeah, I think exactly. it's, it's fantastic. The reason yeah. why I would have it this way is, to, is when you're deciding winner and loser, you want to create as much of a differential on ability as possible. And once we get down to penalty kicks, every team has a player that can walk up and lash the ball. And I respect the fact that there's skill involved in penalties, right? But a lot of them is just players walking up, playing a game of averages and just putting their fist to the ball. It's harder to take the ball and dribble. You coach kids, takes a lot longer to teach a kid how to dribble with a ball at his feet or her feet than it does to walk up and lash a ball. And to me, that would definitely be the best. You would definitely, in my opinion, have much greater outcomes of the best team winning and the worst team not winning if you did that. It's also a totally different skill, right? Because a penalty... Yes, if you don't think and you can be instinctive on a penalty because it's one kick, you can do that. But when you're dribbling with a ball and the goalkeeper can come out, it's a greater skill to beat that goalkeeper than it is with a penalty where they're stuck on their line. There's a lot more things can go wrong. And so to me, this is a better way of separating the better team from the weaker team than just regular penalties because... I mean, regular penalties is like a home run derby, right? And so it's not really a deciding factor between the better team, you know? I mean, Chelsea have lost two finals this season on penalties, right? And did they really lose? I mean, it's essentially, you know, a goalkeeper missing a penalty and a goalkeeper scoring a penalty. You know, you need to play for Real and well, the goalkeeper missed a penalty. Was it thirteen penalties, twelve, eleven? Because they had two kids Did they really lose? You know, and see, to me, I think that would be a better, a better way of to say in the game. But we'll I'll, I'll let you have the last word, and we'll take it out, man.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry, you can convince me on a lot of stuff. You're not convincing <laughs> me on this penalties. Maybe when I'm more drunk, but
0: <laughs> no, um,
1: no, no audience no. to say. Yeah, exactly let have have them maybe do a an official vote from the beyond the pitch account. We show the that. show the show of throwback video of I remember Jesse Marsh doing one from yep. for the Red Bulls and uh have them decide. <laughs> when i you're not class, convincing class. me though. I'm too I much, think it, man. Nate, do if it ain't shit. broke, don't fix it. It That's is broke though. It
0: is broke. What? What are you talking Gosh. about? Your logic is I broke. would but, Baggio penalty, World Cup. I'd have loved to have seen dribbles. I think it would have been class. <laughs> Can you imagine Harry Maguire getting but... the ball the halfway line <laughs>
1: <laughs> Listen, one thing as well that I think, I think you might have fewer of is Panenka's. and that's mm-hmm. the for me that's the most beautiful, if yeah. not uh, the most risky penalty out there is the Panenka. I think yeah, that yeah. you. You switch to the MLS style, I think you'd have less of the Panenka's. Yeah, I'll
0: take that. There that are so is. many.
1: There are so many great penalties out there, and look. Yes, it's unfair, but at the same time, um, it's 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 the only way. And also, it's not like look, any player can practice penalties. It doesn't matter if you're a goalkeeper or a center back, but. Look, I'm I'm very much (laughs) I'm very much a purist on this. I've had um, I've had lengthy debates with my girlfriend who's 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 said multiple times like the player who is fouled in the box should be the one to take Mm -hmm. the penalty and not like the team's ring. And I'm just like (laughs) I've always Mm -hmm. shut her down. Like no, that's absolutely ridiculous. There, the the fact is just like a team has the best header of the ball or a best you know a best um best fullback or whatever um you you also have the best penalty shooter you know penalty shooting it's a skill and i see where you're coming from but uh i just don't think it would ever happen I'm because look it's been have and have there been any other of this like the let's call it MLS late nineties mm-hmm. style penalties. Have there been any like other teams trying, other leagues trying to adapt it? You know, I'm not, I'm not too sure. Nah, because but.
0: you have people that are identified fight to copy American, but listen, <laughs> if my life depended on, and you said <laughs> to me, here's a penalty, or you dribble that ball from the halfway line and score, I'm taking a penalty. If the oh goalkeeper, if I asked the goalkeeper, what do you want? Do you want a penalty? Or do you want a guy running through that you can come out and close the angle down? I'm saying I want that because that gives I, me a much better chance of saving it than penalty. So that to me I is agree. why I I, agree. I, think, I I think that's an
1: interesting point as well. That's maybe the first time <laughs> to admit there's some validity. You because drinking? I actually do think I think that if you pulled the games leading goalkeepers and the games leading outfield players I think that Potentially there's a good chance that look, I don't think most people most people I think they're but they're I think maybe thirty, forty percent would actually say yes. But um then you've got the annoying
0: purists like me who say <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't wanna do it. So <laughs> Well, we talked about kick-ins last week. That could change. Lots of things could change. Go ahead and leave it there. Uh, We'll be back next week. Lots of different topics next week. We'll start integrating your questions. So we'll start putting out the questions a day or so before the show. Um, One of the things I want to tackle with you next week, Zach, is Mm -hmm. why are so many Americans buying into European teams? What do they see on the horizon? What is their... Expectation when I look at something like Todd Bowley paying close to four billion for Chelsea, a, a, a team that's nowhere near worth four billion. Um, mm-hmm. what do they see? What's their motivation? Now, to me, it's this is uh interesting juxtaposition. We shall see, we'll talk about a few other things next week. Uh, will we leave it there. Zach, thanks as always, mate. Much appreciated. And uh, folks, we'll be Thank back you. next week. Please give us a follow at Zach Lloyd, break at BTL as well, breaking the lines. And of course, us at Beyond the Pitch, and myself at Mark Hans. Thanks as always, folks, and I take it easy. Hey. See you, mate.